Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada, and I'm hosting this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we go behind the scenes with special guests to talk about the true crime stories you can watch on Netflix. This month, we're covering the two killings of Sam Cooke. This documentary is part of Remastered, a Netflix original series. This eight-track series investigates, rediscovers, and reimagines high-profile events featuring some of the most legendary names in music. This episode, we're taking a look at the untold story of the legendary soul singer and civil rights activist, Sam Cooke. We have the director, Kelly Duane de la Vega, speaking with Tracy Clayton. You might know Tracy from the podcast Another Round or the new Netflix original podcast, Strong Black Legends. Take it away, Tracy and Kelly. I am genuinely and super excited to talk about this documentary because it's like the perfect intersection of who I am, kind of. I'm obsessed with true crime documentaries and podcasts and all of the television shows on Investigation Discovery. But also, I love Sam Cooke. And I love Sam Cooke because my mom, when I was little, decided that I didn't like rap music. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, she would tell my brother, you know, oh, we need to change the station. Tra- we don't like rap music, do we, Tracy? I'm like, no. <laughs> and so she would give me her music to listen to. And Sam Cooke, uh, I still think I have my best of Sam Cooke cassette tape. So I'm very, very curious if you have some affinity for Sam Cooke as well. Like what led you to tell this story and work on this project? First of all, the first part of like what my connection was to Sam Cooke is when I grew up, my bedroom window, if you open the window, you could hear everybody chatting on the street. And there were a lot of people Mm. chatting. And I had a neighbor who always played the staple singers and Sam Cooke, mm-hmm. and he'd crank it. And I would oh. just listen, fall asleep to it. It was just, and I loved it. And I finally got mm. the courage to go next door. I mean, go across the street and ask, like, what is that? Who's, who's singing that? Mm-hmm. And um, I think he was a bit charmed, and he gave me, you know, two records. Aww. So in some ways, like, I had this real deep childhood connection to Sam mm-hmm. Cooke. And my father uh, was in the civil rights movement, and he was in um, Albany, Georgia, and also Jackson, Mississippi for a period. And so Change is Gonna mm-hmm. Come was a song um, mm-hmm. that was just on, you know, the record player from time to time. It was a sort of a song that over the course of my life that I would go to in times mm. of deep pain. And what I always think about that song is that it's both in, it exposes incredible injustices and incredible pain, but it has this thread mm-hmm. of optimism. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes we don't all feel that optimistic. So I would go to that Listen, song. Ooh, don't get me started. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I'd go to that song and it just sort of it helped me try to believe that we could do better as a nation and as a people. When I hear that song, I always think about that scene in um, Malcolm X, Spike Lee's yeah. movie. And I think mm-hmm. it's like the day before he's going to get murdered and there's just like him going through Harlem and that song is playing. And he's got this look in his eye. And I just remember being like, this is the perfect song for this scene. Yeah, You know, like, I mean, and I don't even know if I have the words to like describe it, you know, but it was just like, yes, this fits. This feels this feels right. Exactly. Yeah. And I felt so lucky I got to talk to, you know, people like Mark Anthony Neal and Kevin Powell and 
that yeah. were kind of, were able to put words to I think what you're describing and what I felt, and I think obviously people interact with that song really differently, but to have sort of these mm-hmm. big thoughtful thinkers be able to articulate some of those deep feelings was one of the big pleasures of making the film. A thing that I was that I always look to and look forward to in music documentaries is like who's gonna come to like talk about this amazing person. So like I'm watching them it's like, oh my gosh, it's Quincy Jones. Oh my gosh, it's Dionne Warwick. So I would love to talk about and get into how one makes a documentary. You know, like what's what's the first step? Right. So for me, I've made a lot of films, and most of them are actually verite films. And this was a mm. little different for me because I haven't make, made what we sort of refer to as a talking head or archival film in a pretty long time. And the executive producers of Remastered approached me and asked me if I would do the Sam Cooke episode. And I had this both, like, deep, like, you know, I was so excited. Was that just happenstance that they happened to need someone to make a documentary on one of your favorite singers? Yes. Wow. But, you know, in our community, I feel really conflicted being, you know, my entitled to tell this story? And I think these are the questions we have mm. to start asking, especially because so many white historians and white documentary filmmakers have been in a position to tell stories that are not indigenous to their own life experience. And Mm -hmm. I felt, you know, I I remember when they called at one level, I was like jumping out of my seat. I was also totally, you know, I was in between projects. I was kind of broke. And (laughs) and my husband was thrilled and my kids were like, couldn't believe it. And then I kind of had to sit down and say, am I, is this okay? You know, is this this right? Yeah. And making that choice, if I'm just totally frank with you, I'm not— I still struggle with that, but what I felt like the Mm. decision I made, and I spoke with my husband at length about it, was that I wanted every voice of authority in the film to be from, you know, to be African-American. I was like, I want every historian, I want every intellectual to be African-American. And I wanted gender parity, and I wanted to sort of make sure that that was at the forefront. And then I was like, and then white people who Mm -hmm. are actually friends with Sam or were talking from a personal standpoint, then I would interview them and include them and their voices. But that's about a friendship or a personal experience. So that's sort of how I I approached it. Uh And the executive producers, I think, at first they're like, oh, that's interesting (laughs) because all of my interview list would come back. But I think ultimately everybody was really supportive of that direction. Yeah. I'm very interested to know what it was that finally made you say, okay, I feel at least okay enough to take on this project. I mean, if I'm frank, it was it was never 100% that that's my, that I'm entitled to do that. I think I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. What made me say yes was partially financial, just having to put food on the table. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also feeling like there aren't enough women directors that are getting big mm. opportunities. And, you know, I felt like somebody was giving me this opportunity. And as a woman, I felt... Uh, grateful for that and also concerned about turning it down for my long-term career. 
Mm. And then, of mm. course, what am I going to do? I love Sam Cooke. Like, yeah. And I do, you know, I've been immersed in the story of civil rights my whole life just because of how I grew up. So mm. I knew— you your dad, right? Yeah, through my father. Mm. And so— I, and the way I was raised, I mean, I grew up in Berkeley, and I went to Berkeley Public Schools at a time where we were all the kids of the anti-war movement, of the Black Panthers, of mm-hmm. all these different movements, that, you know. So I felt like I knew that if I was going to take his story, I wanted to highlight civil rights, and I wanted—and mm-hmm. I felt like I knew I could do that in a way that I would, you know, feel like I could hold my head up high— and I mm-hmm. did consult with Kevin Powell. I called him, and, I was, and we talked it through. Um, yeah. I wish he was on—I was like, oh, I should have had Kevin or uh, Mark mm-hmm. Anthony Neal share, like, do the podcast together, because they're both such mm. wonderful speakers. Yeah. Um, but I really, you know, I wanted—I hammered out ideas with him, and and I don't know. And then somehow I got to a place where I felt like, okay, I'm going to do this, and— I've been really happy with the response. That part has made me feel good. You could tell that there was great care taking in the telling of this story. I saw the film before I even thought about who was making the film because I love Sam Cooke. Again, I love true crime documentaries. And I was confused by the title. I was like, two killings of Sam. How does one die twice? (laughs) You know? And I started to think about what I knew about Sam Cooke's passing and about his life in general. And I realized not a lot. I didn't really know a lot about this man whose music, like, I really, really loved. So can you talk a little bit about the title, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke? There was the killing of the man, the physical killing. But there's also this sort of death of his legacy. And so Mm -hmm. many people don't know that he was really an emerging civil rights, black power uh, figure, and that there mm-hmm. was this incredibly profound way in which he lived his life, and he empowered his own community. That I that wasn't part of the way people talked about Sam or experienced Sam. And of course, there's people who mm-hmm. are st- well studied in music, and they know that. But I think the vast majority of the public didn't know that, and mm-hmm. it was, and that's the second death. You know what happened to his legacy? So that's. Right. You know, that's sort of the metaphor there. Well, I'll tell you what, I was completely, completely blown away. I had no idea. What really threw me was the footage of after the Thriller in Manila fight and Muhammad Ali, who is very dear to my heart as a Louisvillian, he's like calling for Sam Cooke and he's just like, it's Sam Cooke, he's a great guy. And I'm like, wait, whoa, wait, hey, how'd this happen? I know. How did he get in there? What? Why don't people know about that? Do you have any theories? Isn't that, that incredible? I, I confess I also grew up with Muhammad Ali as sort of a <laughs> hero. And I read David Remnick's book, you know, he's such an incredible orator and political Mm -hmm. figure. And I didn't know that either, I'm embarrassed to admit. And when I saw it, I just about, you know, I died. And just to think of Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali and Sam Cooke hanging out. um, Nuts. And it just kind of blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And also there was an interesting thing that Muhammad Ali said at the time that we didn't dig into, actually, it didn't make it into the final cut because th- that moment was about something else, but I thought was really interesting, is he said, you know, this is the greatest rock and roll star. 
Mm. And rock and roll was, you know, you know, according to this is all me paraphrasing, Mark Anthony Neal, who was, you know, he's like that was a deliberate, like, you know, rock and yeah. roll maybe was getting stolen in terms of who identified with who made rock and roll music. Mm-hmm. And he was giving that to Sam, like saying, Sam owns this. Mm. So I thought that was really interesting too, interesting little nugget. So you were surprised to find out about that relationship. What else surprised you while you were making this doc? I mean, it's interesting. You go, when you make a film and you were asked, alluded to this earlier, like, how do you make a film? And I think everybody does it differently. And for me, it's really total immersion. So I get, read everything I can find. I look at tons of photographs, even if there's no way they can be in the film. (laughs) And I essentially listen, you know, I listen to Sam Cooke the entire time I was making the film, basically everywhere I drove, you know, I was just living and breathing Sam Cooke. So Mm -hmm. in some ways, I learned so much, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting that He was roommates with Lou Adler, Mm -hmm. who, I don't know if you know Lou Adler, but they wrote that great song, I Don't Know Much About History, you know. Oh, what um, a wonderful world this would be. Yeah, they wrote that together. And I interviewed Lou, and he's, you know, he's not in the film as much as I would wish he was. Mm -hmm. But Lou Adler was a, grew up in L.A. in a Jewish family, and he was an aspiring songwriter. Mm-hmm. And Sam moved to L.A. and Sam was a hot shot. And he hadn't mm-hmm. yet got married. And it was before Barbara moved to L.A. And they were roommates for this period of time. And they were just constantly writing music together. And, you know, when he talked about that experience, I think there's a way in which our music history is really segregated in the way mm-hmm. we talk about it. So to think about... The fact that Sam Cooke was listening to Bob Dylan and covering Bob Dylan mm-hmm. and then inspired by Bob Dylan. Or you think of, you know, this Mavis Staple and the Staple Singers covering Bob Dylan and this this sort of intersection and intertwining of these genres of music that I think most people think of as really separate. Yeah. And it's fascinating to think that actually there was much more overlap than sort of in popular consciousness. And also Mm -hmm. the idea of ownership of music and how that's been misappropriated over the years is is so complicated. It's part of all, like, our entire country's origin story is so mixed up and complicated. And, you know, so there's so many things, such a rich history and culture and art that's emerged out of our country. And then so many things that just break your heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, Things to be ashamed of. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. This is making me think of uh, when Kevin Powell said in the film, Black blues musicians and jazz musicians and early black rock and roll artists who didn't really make anything for their music. Feels like sharecropping, where you do all the work, you do the labor, it's your creativity, your energy, and then someone else reaps the benefits of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the most perfect and heartbreaking analogy. I've ever heard. People, a lot of people tweeted about that line. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's because a lot of, uh, at least like media Twitter is going through that like right now. You know, like there are a lot of uh, white media companies who, I mean, who knows what's really going on. But everybody was like, okay, a lot of the people that are getting cut are brown people, you know. And so who, who makes this content 
if you won't keep us around, if you don't find it interesting enough to keep like what happens to it. And they don't care because they've gotten what they need from you. You know, they've gotten your money. And earlier you were saying that um, how complicated everything is. I feel like it's uh, like purposefully complicated. Right. Because Mm -hmm. so much of the, the, the talent that people found and, you know, white A&R folks discovered, quote unquote, you know, a lot of them are poor, you know, need yeah. money. They don't have and black people in general haven't had the access to education and everything. I mean, you right. I'm preaching to the choir. You know how it is. And yeah, so, I do. I do. But I think it's good to talk about it. Yeah. I think it's good to yeah. talk about it. Uh-huh. And I think it's good for all of us that are, you know, aligned to get into these uncomfortable conversations mm-hmm. about about this this conversation, how do we collectively respect each other and honor each other, but also acknowledge the power and privilege structure in place and our mm-hmm. role in it and what, how we're benefiting from it. And I, you know, I think about that a lot. Yeah, it's such a it's such a tiring problem to think about because I feel like what it comes down to at the end of the day is money. And it's like, how do you convince yeah. a millionaire to care more about people than his money? Yeah, I don't Ugh. know. I don't know. We've got to work on it together. <laughs> I know. I don't know. Well, we didn't solve racism this episode, everybody. Yeah, Maybe exactly. the next one. <laughs> With the white lady. She hasn't snitched it. Darn it. <laughs> I mean, I think we just started a spinoff podcast, personally. Yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. We'll just take it on. We'll get it done in our lifetime. No problem. So was it difficult to book somebody like Quincy Jones? So that I will say the show had a you know really strong booking team. Oh, okay. And they were able so that wasn't on me. There were two people I really wanted to interview among many, but mm-hmm. um Aretha Franklin Aww. who said yes oh. and then she was too sick. You said she had said yes? She had said yes. Oh. So the whole time I was making the film, I thought I was going to meet Aretha Franklin. I was terrified. Oh my How do you God. meet Aretha Franklin? <laughs> yeah, it's like, true. that's just so scary. <laughs> oh, my god. I gosh. feel like, but so she was one, and the other was Mavis Staple. Mm. And I just, I sort of have worshipped her my whole, like, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And I loved when I, you know, found out she had been in relationship with Bob Dylan, sort of during this time period, I thought, wow, that's what? so interesting. Like a romantic relationship? Yes. <gasps> Mavis Staples and Bob Dylan? Yes. Oh. Is that a crazy thought? What is happening? <laughs> I know. And so I, I was desperate for her. Mm. And then also she was also married to, there's a, there's a gentleman who's not in the film that often, but he... Uh, ran and runs a funeral parlor in Chicago, mm. and he was her first husband. Wow! And they, you know, and his funeral parlor was the one who hosted Sam Cooke's oh, funeral. Wow. So she had all these ways in which she was connected to him. So she, I really, really wanted her, and she was never available. Uh. But Quincy Jones was a delight. I mean, yeah. he welcomed us into his house and. <laughs> Three hours later, you know, we're just hanging out. I was like, what? am I hanging out at Quincy Jones' house? How's this possible? Did you know that his middle um, name is actually Delight? No. It's true. It's true. You can Google well, it right now. Quincy Delight all right, Well, the Jones. mom knew what was up. <laughs> <laughs> she knew before he any of us that he was going to be a delight. And he just talked about everything under the sun. Yeah. Another thing I thought was so lovely is with the whole crew, mm-hmm. he'd go one by one, like, where are you from? 
Mm. And we had an international crew that year, that day. And he would then tell a story, like an origin story uh-huh. from whatever, whatever country. But it was just kind of amazing just to spend that time with mm-hmm. him. And he was so gracious. Yeah, it sounds so kind. And then Smokey Robinson. No, can I tell you a secret that we can't leave in this, in the, in the publishing? Yes. <laughs> All the producers are like, go on. <laughs> um, I'm, Smokey Robinson has always scared me. Okay. Like he's, I don't know what it is. It, it could be, there's something Have about Have you ever eyes. seen him in person? No, I, well, I would die. <laughs> you would die. Yeah. Okay, so I was on three weeks for this. I mean, I'm a mother of two, so it's a little irresponsible to, not irresponsible, but, you know, it's not that often that I leave my kids mm-hmm. for more than five days is usually what I try to keep it down to. And as a filmmaker, you do that. Yeah. And my kids are tough and they can deal. But I was on the road for a long time. And we had always wanted Smokey Robinson. And I was flying home from Chicago. It was completely exhausted, mm-hmm. total train wreck, you know. And I um, get a text. Smokey Robinson said, yes, <laughs> but it has to be in L.A. tomorrow. Oh, my gosh. At X- and I thought, my kids haven't seen me in three weeks, oh. and I'm not going to— I'm going to come home and then get on a plane. Right. So I was like, I don't know if I can do it, and I, I didn't know what to do. And then eventually they talked me into it, and I got up the next morning at 5 a.m., and I flew what? down to L.A. Uh, I'm and tired I was of so ex- to the story. <laughs> I know. It's exhausting. Um, so I get there. We're in this gorgeous mansion, mm-hmm. and in comes Smokey Robinson— so beautiful. Oh like, it's God. extraordinary in real life. I don't always think on camera it translates. Is that what it to is? Me. Or is he actually yes. a secret android and I'm the only person who knows? No, it <laughs> is. But here's the thing. I and mean, you've tapped into something. Oh. So he comes in. First of all, he's got a very large, like extra, extra, extra large, pure white lab <gasps> with him. Like the most gorgeous white lab. I don't even know if it's a lab because it was so big. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he walks in and he's so elegant. I mean, he's he's almost like a dancer in his physicality mm-hmm. and just that he and he sits down. He has this incredible peaceful aura. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, like I've interviewed a lot of people and I'm sure you have, too. Obviously, you have. <laughs> and even if it's somebody you admire and you're excited, sometimes you're, you're just kind of drained after. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the times when you interview famous people, they're very focused on themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that's part of how they got there. <laughs> right. And maybe they deserve it. <laughs> but I sat down with him. A, he's like the least narcissistic famous person I've ever met. That's like just. Good. So gracious towards Sam, so generous towards everybody he spoke. He about he just lifted everybody up, Aww. and then he had this bizarre energy that just elevated you, where you actually were getting more energy than less. Hmm. So maybe you are onto something. Yeah, I was he left, say. and I was like rejuvenated as a person. <laughs> I was like, what just happened? I was gonna say you might have me rethink my feelings about Smokey Robinson, but also maybe you've given me more evidence. I don't know. Got to think about it. It could go either way. Could go. You know, he's a me- he's like a transcendental, you know, he meditates mm-hmm. or he's been meditating since the 1970s. He's like got this ah. core 
of like, I don't know, but I don't know. He is an extraordinary, unusual, absolutely stunningly beautiful human being in both in personality and physical. Hmm. Okay. I hear you out. I hear you. I think I need to meet the dog. <laughs> that will help me to decide. The dog will blow your mind. The dog will blow your mind. Um, <laughs> I have one really good untold story. Oh, yes, If please. you're interested in Absolutely. That is not um, 100% fact-checked, okay. but I think I'm comfortable putting out in the world, which is that we spoke with, and I say we, one of the executive producers on the show knew Ambassador Shabazz personally. Mm. And we went, you know, I really wanted her to be in the film. Oh, yeah. And just so you know, I worked really hard. I wanted there to be parody in, from men and women. Right. Um, and I wanted her in there. And she ultimately decided not to do it. But she did say that she believed that Change is Gonna Come was written for Malcolm X and that it was... That and she might have even said that Sam Cooke told her father that that song was a gift to him. Oh my gosh! So I don't know if it's hundred percent true, but like I written, think it's, I'm sorry, written like once he pet. Oh no, that doesn't make no any sense. before like when they were in the movement and wow. that you know I I like to think like you know that. Malcolm X touched Sam in some way in terms of just how he thought, and he it inspired him to write that mm-hmm. story. So, I don't know. I don't know that's a fact, yeah. but that was shared with me, and I just thought it just also deepened the connection to yeah. the song in terms of understanding where it came from. Also, it's just such a a tender a tender act, you know, between yeah. two black men, and nobody nobody ever equates black men with tenderness and sweetness and like writing a song for someone you know what I mean this is ah. well when you look at Sam and Muhammad Ali singing oh, that was at the, the time. cutest in the world hey hey the gang's all here joining the fun <laughs> hey hey the gang's all here we're gonna swing as one do it again that's right mm-hmm. and I will tell you this Every single person that I interviewed that knew Sam spoke about him like he was somebody they had a massive crush on. You know, whether it was like a dude or it didn't matter who it was. And they all—he clearly inspired incredible uh, affection Mm. and and emulated kindness. I mean, most of the people— Almost every single one, like that, they kept coming back. They all sort of said, oh, well, you kind of just can't help but fall in love with him. You know, he's, you know, anyway. So why do you think it is that we don't know this about Sam Cooke? You know, how did we lose him? Where did he get lost? That's such a good question. Over the course of making the film, I, you know, I would come up with one theory after another, and, and sometimes they were debunked and, I I do think there's something about the fact that when he died, because it was scandalous, that there was sort of this hijacking of his legacy. His legacy really should have been what he was doing in terms of empowering the black community. And also, I mean, he wasn't, you know, I think this is Mark Anthony Neal talks about this in the film, but this incredible code switcher. Like he was mm-hmm. he was really operating in a profound and deep way in both the white community and the black community. And I think some of that got that part of his legacy really got hijacked by the way 
the story of how he died mm-hmm. and that it became sort of a scandalous story that changed the way a lot of people thought about him. I mean, I don't think it changed how a lot of people in the African-American community thought of him. Maybe it did. I don't know. Right. Um, but certainly if you're, you know, some white person from a distance that doesn't have any level of skepticism towards the stories you're being told— mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, wow, that's kind of, you know, an upsetting way that he died. Yeah. And I think that for a time, that's how the stories, the stories circled around that because it was sorted. And that's sort of how our culture gravitates to those kind of stories. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, you know, that incredible story that his Live at Harlem Square album sat in a vault mm. for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until some young guy, like, he discovered them in the vault and decided 20 years later, like, he saw if he could bring them to life. Mm-hmm. And I also think, you know, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn and I don't, you know, I don't want to get into it. Mm-hmm. But I also think whoever is managing the vision of who he is, there was obviously a certain vision that has been put out into the world. And it's a little bit more of the slick Sam Cook at the Copa. And mm-hmm. everybody I talked to said he loved the Copa and he loved his success there and he loved his ability to move in different worlds. But he also really had this deep connection to his own community and somehow that part just was lost for many people. And also hearkening back to the sharecropping analogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From um, earlier, you know, if the if the people who are controlling the media that we consume are people who haven't been steeped in or interested in that part of his life. You know, of course, they're going to focus on the sensational, you know, way that he passed. So when we can't tell our stories and when we're left at the bottom of the chain, just kind of like cranking out content, you know, our stories do get lost, you know? Yeah, Hmm. yeah, absolutely. Okay, conspiracy theory time. Who do you think Okay. This is a hard one for me because I did talk to a lot of people, not everybody in the film. Mm-hmm. I talked, you know, I brought stuff to uh, investigative criminal experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I kept getting back was that, you know, that, that they didn't believe there was necessarily evidence to confirm one way or the other that something was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so to me, with the official story, I think almost nobody believes the official official story. Yeah, so weird. Um, it is weird. And I, but I also think like, to me, the more, the thing I could have concrete or that I could think about concretely is if we as a culture don't value people's lives mm-hmm. and investigate either you know, protect them from being killed by law enforcement or meaningfully investigate the deaths of people, that what that does is it just breeds incredible distrust, yeah, right? Yeah, for and, sure. And as long as we're contributing, we're creating a culture where institutions are not places that everybody in the community feels they can turn to, then it, it breeds conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this point of time and in this moment in history is that there were really brutal assassinations of powerful black intellectuals and black leaders that really make the idea of it being a crazy conspiracy sort of feel much less crazy. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know what happened. 
you know, I on different days, I believe different things. Yeah. On our team, people believe different things. Like one executive producer was like, it was definitely the mom. Mm-hmm. That's what I um, thought for a really long, like for a whole 20 minutes. And I was like, well, but that woman was weird, you know, like uh, maybe she just yeah. like went. I don't know. Also, she was a motel owner in a really dangerous neighborhood, yeah. right? And so. Yeah. Oh, I was talking I about the, um, the, not the lady who pulled the trigger. Um, the other woman, yes, right. Yeah. Right. So here's what I think happened, if I may. Okay, lay it on me. Lay it okay, on me. Okay, here's what I think happened. I think that he was indeed a threat to uh, the FBI, CIA. I can't remember mm-hmm. which one. Either, either or. Um, and I think they knew that he may have been a bit of a womanizer, you know, attractive young man. Yes, definitely. Uh-huh. And I think that they sent her there to set him up somehow, right? Maybe to, like, bug the room and get something on on cassette, yeah. whatever, or maybe even to kill him. And I think something odd happened. They end up in the motel um, lobby or whatever. And then the lady's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody is killing me on today. And then yeah, that's what yeah, happened. Yeah. I think that All I right. think that that's All what right. happened, at least today. Okay. We should check in again Okay, next I, You know, I'm willing to go. You know, I, I flip-flop all the time. I like it. You're not alone. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you one thing that's really interesting is I interviewed a lot of people, as you can tell in the film. Mm-hmm. And at the end, a lot of people were like, I can't talk about his death. I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. And then when the, you know, the cameras are off and we're shutting down and we're chatting, you know, people would pull you in the back room and they're like, I think this happened. Mm. Or, you know, and so what I do think is all the people who are close to him also, they have their own theories, but they're kind of scared. Really? They're still scared. What does the theory seem to, like, if you had to, like, generalize, what is the most popular I mean, they're all over the map, but, I mean, a lot of them echo what you said and that, Mm. you know, and... I think even Elvis thought what you said. I think that was one of Elvis's theories. Elvis. So, yeah, <laughs> huh. who apparently was his friend. Yeah. So, um, but a lot of people, I think, think it's the mob. And they were afraid if they said yeah. it on tape, something could happen to them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I think it could have been like just a collection of really awful, you know, yeah. mishaps that just led to this utterly tragic end. Mm-hmm. I think that if we had a, a society that treated that death with more meaning and more sort of took it seriously, I mean, we talked to the the cops who were working in that precinct at the time, and we talked to um, Joan Dew, who was a reporter, and she talks about going down to the precinct, and, and she had a personal relationship with Sam, and she's like, what's going on? And we know the culture of the LAPD at that mm-hmm. time and wh- how seriously they consider black-on-black crime and how little they were interested in investigating. And I think that that's why we don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's an open wound for people who fall in love with Sam Cooke mm-hmm. and learn about his legacy and really want to have a be- want closure. You know, when you don't have closure, you have an open wound of hurt mm-hmm. for, you know, for generations. Mm. That feels like the most appropriate wrap for this conversation. I think that was beautiful and lovely. Before you head out, what are you working on next? I definitely am invested already because I was so impressed with this film. What's uh, what's next on the pipeline? So I'm working on a film about growing up female in the South and sort of Ooh. through the lens of religion 
um, and the political establishment and telling young girls and women's stories from different altitudes of power and privilege. Wow. <laughs> and I know you're Southern, right? Yeah, I mean, if you need someone to talk to, you know, I do. I do. So I'm going to have to get you to, you know, I always, whenever I make a film, I think it's so important to have people that are from the place and from the culture. Uh, it should be deeply involved. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. And I also work at a organization that uh, provides grants for women, diverse women across the globe. And I'm really proud of that. Grants to make documentary films. Uh, Yes. Give more money to women all the time. I love it. They're called Chicken and Egg Pictures. And they have, over the last almost 15 years, funded over 300 women and have been really instrumental in empowering women directors. And it's a really diverse staff and Mm -hmm. there's a really deep commitment to diversity and inclusion in terms of who's funded. Well, that is fantastic. And as a lover of chickens, alive and fried, <laughs> I love the name. <laughs> yeah, good, good. Where can people find you on the internet or on social media? You can find me at Twitter at Kelly Dwayne, K-E-L-L-Y-D-U-A-N-E. And you can find me on the internet at threeframes.org. All right. I cannot stress enough how good this film is. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, I'm sure, busy, busy schedule to chat with us and um, call me about this documentary. (laughs) It was such a pleasure. I (laughs) loved every second talking to you. Before we let you go, we've got one more treat for you. You know the segment. It's time for What You Watching. It's where we find out what the people in this episode are watching on Netflix. I devoured Russian Doll. I loved it. It's the first two episodes. It took me a little while. And I will say that Natasha Leone tweeted about the movie and about Sam Cooke. And I just, I just kind of crushed out. Okay, so then Narcos. I do love Narcos. There's a beautiful jazz film called I Called Him Morgan that is a one-off documentary that's incredible. And Roma, I watched. I'm going to check out all of those. Confession, I didn't love Russian Doll. I got, like, I just just couldn't get into it. I stayed with, like, until, like, five episodes. That's a long time if you're not feeling it after five. (laughs) Then that's your ultimate. Then you're all set. You're in good shape. But you know what? I randomly did that with another Netflix series. I thought it started off slow, but something was like, just keep watching, just keep watching. It's uh, Disenchanted, made by Matt, I cannot pronounce his last name ever, The Simpsons guy. <laughs> so that guy. Um, Disenchanted is a series about a princess, right? I love it. I love anything about a princess who would rather drink and cuss and gamble and fight than do princessy stuff. And just like the elves, elfo, and and just, ugh, it's such a good time. It's a really, really good fun time, if you can stick with it. Our planet, ugh, I just... Our planet is a must? Oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. It's okay. It's a it's a nature documentary, of course, but it's, it's just like there's, it's like a nature documentary in like 3D or something. I don't know, like the colors seem brighter, the footage is amazing. David Attenborough is David Attenborough, so, which is 
always necessary for a good nature documentary. And I mean, it's just so pretty. Sadly, lots of animals die as soon as you fall in love with them, because that's how it goes, I know. Then ironically, um, I go from that to Forensic Files, which all 877,000 episodes, I think, are on Netflix. (laughs) And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next month with a new series or film for you to add to your watch list. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it, and it makes us feel like we're getting a virtual hug right from you. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hanzel Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and thank you so much for listening.